should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday, March 16th. We're halfway into March, and uh, 2017 just feels like it's slowly, <laughs> slowly, slowly, slowly uh, passing us by, but every day seems like it's uh, such a challenge, right? And so my whole message is just to make sure we're all taking care of each other. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This year uh, actually started pretty badly for me as, as, as far as the show goes. I talked about getting an email from several um, Trump supporters who were asking me why I was instilling such fear in the LGBTQ community because he's not homophobic or he hasn't done anything. Uh, to to mess with our rights. Well, I would argue that he's done plenty to mess with our rights, and that would include uh, what he's done as far as the Muslim travel ban, uh, what he's done as far as immigration and to undocumented folks, which is all inclusive of the LGBTQ community, and also just recently has announced you know what he's done affecting the transgender community. Uh, this week, I'd like to focus our attention to the attitudes of what has transpired over some of these decisions. And I'm not just necessarily blaming this on our current president, but that we know what he, the, uh, the, the transphobia, the, the homophobia that has transcended from some of these decisions is also affecting decisions that states will make. So it's been announced this week that South Dakota has become the first state in the country in 2017 to actually make law of a, uh, a bill that would allow for family agencies to deny services to LGBTQ families. And uh, let's Let's go ahead and talk about that. Our guest on the phone is Zach Nissler. Zach, thanks so much for joining us, and let us know. Who are you with? Hey, thank you. Thank you, Michelle, for having me on. I am with Equality South Dakota. Um, we are the longest statewide LGBT organization in South Dakota and have been around since 1995. Thank you, and thank you for existing and existing that long to see yeah. some major progress in the LGBTQ community and, and recently um, some regression. So SB149 uh, is is what exactly? I mentioned it very briefly, but tell us what does it yeah, do to discriminate? You know, uh, your description is, is pretty on point with exactly what it is. The bill isn't very long, but it is um, a piece of legislation, or I guess now law, um, that allows uh, religious-based organizations 
um, to discriminate against LGBT uh, families and couples um, in their desire to adopt and foster children that are um, in the system and looking for, for families. Um, and, of course, in South Dakota, um, there are no real other organizations besides religious um, organizations that do this work, and they all um, receive some form of state funding. So, um, you know, really sad to see, but now it is law in South Dakota for um, LGBTQ families to be denied the ability to adopt or to foster children um, solely based on their or sexual orientation. Now, you know, I, I mentioned it before, certainly not blaming the current president and his administration nor the most recent decisions that he's made that has impacted the LGBTQ community uh, negatively. However, I do believe that it perpetuates and or adds to an anti-LGBTQ environment or attitude. Uh, religious freedom bills have been popping up, you know, prior to the president taking office. I don't want to m- mislead anyone by making those statements. However, you know, what would be your opinion as far as, um, you know, the governor signing this bill into law in South Dakota? Would you say that it falls in line with with efforts that have been there before the administration took office uh, or, to, you know, uh, before President Trump took office? Yeah. I think that, you know, in South Dakota, per se, um, you know, Republican um, administrations or, or candidates have, have always been widely popular, and Donald Trump did no better in South Dakota than um, Mitt Romney or John McCain or, or President Bush either. Um, but what, what I will say um, on the ground, and I think, uh, you know, we saw this with the governor signing this bill, is it's um, the the level of discourse that we're seeing in our process and um, the words and language that are being used by President Trump, I think only furthers, further um, makes it commonplace for that type of language and uh, brashness to um, be more commonplace. So I think the, the level of discourse and conversation has definitely changed. And I think while in uh, 2016, South Dakota was actually the first place that we saw um, a transgender bill, very similar to North Carolina, uh, before North Carolina passed theirs, it, it popped up in South Dakota, and the governor did veto that piece of legislation, thankfully. Um, but I think now those Trump supporters are emboldened, um, and I think it makes it even more difficult for um, moderate or common-sense uh, Republican administrations like the governor we have in South Dakota. It makes it difficult for them to, to veto or to oppose this kind of legislation with um, the supporters that are kind of emboldened and um, have seen success in, you know, recent months. Great point. Great point. That, that goes back to, I mean, a lot of people are asking them what now we know our friends at ACLU is already hard at work in responding to uh, the bill being signed into law by the governor of South Dakota. Uh, but what, what, what's next? I mean, obviously it makes uh, what people need to understand um, is that LGBTQ parents you know, when they can be discriminated against if a family agency does not want to, uh, or citing religious reasons, does not want to service LGBTQ families. I mean, there are children now who will be left without homes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, and that was something that was never brought up in any of the committee hearings or on the floor, um, was what is in the best interest of the kids who are looking for first, you know, just people to love them and the family to belong to. Um, that was never brought up, and 
the other thing that, you know, is just so disheartening and frustrating is there's no actual cases or instances of, um, you know, religious organizations being put in these types of predicaments that they're talking about. So, um, you know, as far as what happens next, we um, are a small organization in partnership with a lot of organizations like the ACLU in South Dakota that are uh, <laughs> trying to do as much work as we can on as many issues as we can, because unfortunately, this isn't the only instance of discrimination that we're facing in um, our rural Republican-dominated state. So um, we continue to try and educate folks, and unfortunately, the fight goes on, and, um, you know, we, we just have to continue to be a presence and, and to be a thorn in their side even when we're not successful. I really commend you for having, you know, just uh, the these, the well, the organization and the courage to, to be out there in um, a state like South Dakota, but at the same time, my guess is that you're in existence because you also have uh, a great community that sh- is showing up and also is resilient and have the support of many people. Um, talk to us about about you know talk to us about that. I mean, the response of this bill, obviously from a national level, the media is picking it up and reporting it as a negative thing that's impacted the community and and being you know pretty good. At least some news outlets are being pretty good at talking about why this is discrimination versus religious freedom. But what's it like in South Dakota right now? You know, I think, you know, one of the the challenges that we had in trying to communicate to folks on the ground um, what the consequences of this bill passing um, was I think it's hard for a lot of people to relate. There's not a lot of examples of this happening. So it's kind of this abstract, um, you know, terminology that's wrapped up in this, you know, the, the great term of religious freedom. And, you know, there has been some national reporting, and unfortunately it comes after the fact, after it's already happened. Um, and, you know, our capital is in the middle of the state, and it's three and a half hours away from the largest population center, and news doesn't get out, you know, the TV cameras aren't there, and newspapers aren't accessible. So um, I think most of our legislators and quite honestly, hope that people don't find out until it's already happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're witnessing now is there's lots of folks that are saying, well, wait, 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 what, what happened? What's going on? Um, South Dakota's the first state to um, to legalize some anti-LGBT legislation. Wow, this is really crazy. Um, and it's our challenge as an organization in partnership with a lot of our friends and allies um, to try and get as much word out before it happens instead of after um, and, you know, I think that's a, a, an issue that we struggle with just because we're so small and so rural. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, having interviews like you that allows people to put on the radar um, that the first steps and all of these anti or these discrimination um, policies that are going to affect across the country, they are starting in South Dakota. They're starting in Alabama. They're starting in rural Republican-dominated states that nobody's paying attention to. We're the guinea pigs. Um, And so, uh, you know, we just need to continue to um, be a voice and stand up and scream at the top of our lungs and hope that we can stop it here first before it it moves on. The ACLU had mentioned that, you know, as far as, like, what what happens now, what happens next, um, you know, it had to discuss... Uh, situations in which they are prepared to file litigation or file lawsuits in response to this bill being passed. 
um, you know, kind of if you know of anything, like what does that what does that look like? Would these lawsuits come from families who are actually impacted, turned away, and or discriminated against? You know, I don't. I'm not as aware of what that process looks like per se. Um, I know that is probably the most likely next step in trying to make sure that um, this law is no longer in place would be um, in the court systems, and hopefully you have uh, judges and such that are are willing to stand up and smack down this uh, discrimination bill. Uh, But it would most likely be coming from, you know, people who unfortunately face um, discrimination because it's state law. Great point. I, I imagine that unfortunately the next step is it's going to take some family um, either not getting a child that they would like to add to their family or no longer having the ability to um, take kids who are in a foster care system. Um, I mean, I think it's going to take an unfortunate circumstance for us to hopefully end, end discrimination in South Dakota now. But the interesting thing to me is that, you know, it's it's in this disguise of, like, religious freedom, but I haven't heard much from the religious community in South Dakota, which, one, if you are doing any critical analysis around the passage of this bill, if it were really so focused on religious freedom, uh, I would imagine that the religious community uh, would really be, you know, applauding and or making a lot of noise about it. It appears, though, that the people who are really proud of it are legislators, you know, um, I don't know. It, it just seems like a, a really shady bill, in, in my opinion. It does. I think it, unfortunately, at the the mercy of some you know really great families, um, the people who supported this legislation and are toting it, are looking to use it as a really great bullet point on their postcards for the next election. Um, they're not doing it because they're trying to solve a problem because. We know the problem doesn't exist. There's no instance that, that there has been a problem. So the only thing that I can come up with, and I think a lot of uh, smart people in South Dakota um, are realizing this, that um, this this is just a pawn in a, you know, getting to say that they, um, you know, are protecting religious freedoms, and it gets to be a, a nice bullet point and tagline on their next um, political campaign. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about SB 149, South Dakota's first anti-LGBTQ bill that has passed this year in 2017. Don't go away. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. 
be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Thursday, March 16th. Let's continue our conversation with Zach Nissler of Equality South Dakota. For, for Equality South Dakota, I would imagine that one of your efforts, you know, in, in telling the honest and true stories of support and allyship that reaching out to the religious community would be uh, one one of your I would I don't want to say strategies but efforts. Uh, well, it's it's paramount paramount and and, and honestly, we have a great uh, relationship with faith leaders and faith based organizations in the state, um, and they more often than not are our biggest allies. They are the people that are testifying in committee hearings. Um, you know, they religious leaders. I mean, faith-based organizations in our state um, have always been standing up alongside us and, and are definitely partners. And I just, um, you know, wish maybe some more legislators listened to their own faith faith leaders uh, when they were making these decisions. Thank you. And that's exactly where I was getting at. Um, because it sounds like a lot of people are, are not informed. And then when you talk about LGBTQ parents as parents, there's been numerous reports from the, uh, you know, a medical world as far as, like, professionals who have done lots of reports of, of how, you know, healthy uh, our children are, and, and there's really no difference in terms of uh, LGBTQ parents and male-female parents. Um, that's one of the things that we've been talking about for years and years, and actually it was an argument, uh, you know, during the marriage equality fight. Yeah. You know, and, and there there was a recent article, I can't remember where, I believe it was Time, per se, that, um, you know, talked about, uh, you know, the strength of same-sex marriages and the positive impacts it had on kids. I mean, that, that article was going viral on social media when this legislation was being debated. I know it was something that um, our organization posted and talked a lot about. Um, and so I think, you know... People are becoming more aware, and they are knowing more LGBTQ families and, and individuals. And um, unfortunately, our legislators and senators, and now president, are, are just behind on the times. And I think um, history isn't going to be very kind to them in the long run. And just to clarify, as we wrap up here, I mean, we know that this this bill is in place and it's law that a family assistance organization can turn away LGBTQ parents based off of, uh, um, uh, you know, what I'm going to say, a belief, a moral belief. But 
there might be some confusion for LGBTQ parents or existing families right now. And just to clarify, do you know if anything in this bill that has been passed or that is now law can affect uh, families that, you know, have been, uh, I guess, uh, LGBTQ parents and their adopted children and or foster children prior to this bill being signed? Yeah, I do. I do not know of any, um, you know, families that either are in current existence and have been going, um, you know, you're already in the foster care system or are in the process of adopting. I don't know how that's going to play out. I would hope that most of these organizations that are trying to place children currently, um, you know, have some compassion and they know um, right from wrong, um, unlike some of our legislators. So um, my hope um, and my own internal guidance is I think most people are good and um, they're going to do the right thing. So I'm hoping it affects very, very few folks. And um, if it does, Equality South Dakota and our partners um, are going to be there to stand up and fight for them. I love it. My last question to you, I mean, I can't help but think of of Pat McCrory, who is the governor of North Carolina. And once he ch- tried to pass HB2, uh, or, you know, he became extremely unpopular with the state. And so this this story is a great story to tell and that there is hope out there. We have allies um, and we have support and social acceptance from our neighbors and our families. And as you mentioned, more and more people are, are you know, accepting of, of their LGBTQ community. Um, any, <laughs> any thoughts on how this could play out in, in South Dakota and those who had supported this bill? Yeah, well, I am um, very hopeful. Uh, our current governor is term limited out, so we will be getting a new governor regardless. So I'm hoping people uh, are asking the people who are currently running um, these questions and what they would do in these circumstances so we can make sure we get somebody um, in there who is LGBT uh, friendly and an ally. Um, and, you know, people need to take a long, hard look at what their legislators are doing um, when they think people aren't paying attention. Because uh, I think that's what uh, these folks are banking on, is that people are too preoccupied and they don't know what's going on. So uh, stay informed. We're going to continue to try and do as much as we can to to make sure people know exactly what's going on and how it affects their daily life. And, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to get folks um, elected to public office who's, who... Uh, support, you know, doing the right thing. So, Zach, I want to thank Hope you so much for your time you. and also for all that you do for our community, especially in a state like uh, South Dakota. Hang in there, and uh, again, we have hope, and we have our friends from ACLU who are absolutely behind uh, the LGBTQ community in South Dakota. So thank you. Yes, we do. Thank you. Have a good day. That's Zach Nissler. He's with Equality South Dakota, and as he mentioned in the interview, uh, if you think about this, you know, we need the television uh, cameras and or the bloggers, and I mean, we need all the energy in the world to go to talking about this bill so that they know we are aware and that we can fight bills like this and stop them from happening across the country. So please support Equality South Dakota. Don't go away. When we come back, we will have a discussion about Judge Neil Gorsuch, who is President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court. Don't go away. 
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Thursday, March 16th. Our next guest is Jim Brosnahan, who's the senior trial counsel with Morrison and Forster. And he's here to talk about President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court Justice, and that is Judge Neil Gorsuch. Jim, thanks so much for making time for us today. And uh, yeah, so who is Judge Neil Gorsuch, really? And is he is he a good pick? In a number of states, he's been on there for several years. He's written about 237 decisions or joined in 237 decisions. So if somebody else writes it, you join in it. You put your name on it, it means you read it and you agree with it. So he's done all that. Uh, About 73 of the decisions relate to the U.S. Constitution. I think it's a fair comment that he favors corporations in a number of very important ways. One of the biggest ways uh, was a case called Hobby Lobby, in which he held that uh, a corporation would have a, a religious right. And that's nobody can quite figure out how that's going to work. Uh, and that's an example of uh, his predisposition to favor corporations over individuals. Thank you so much for bringing that up. And as a reminder to a lot of us, as the Hobby Lobby case was uh, incredibly important and also popular um, as far as like news reports goes, um, you know, some of the issues that him have impacted this country since the president has has taken taken over, I guess I should say, uh, has, you know, let's start with women's rights. Where is Judge Neil Gorsuch, in your opinion, as far as women's rights? Well, uh, it depends on how you define women's rights, but I think it's clear to me, based on several cases which I've looked at and read, uh, that he's not a strong supporter of personal choice. Um, he's, uh, and that's not just on the question of abortion, but it's uh, as to uh, really a number of other things. For example, he 
got his Ph.D. at Oxford in England, which is uh, to his credit. But when he was there, he studied with a man named John Finnis. And uh, if somebody was just uh, taking a teacher, you wouldn't hold him responsible for the teacher. But he, he worked with him for a whole year. And during that period, he must have gotten to know him quite well because Finnis is of the view. Uh, he's a natural law person, and he's very religion-oriented. And this is maybe one of the key points for your listeners. The line in the United States in the First Amendment is between religion and law. And we all have our spiritual and our religious uh, approaches to things, and we want those to be independent. We don't want other people to be telling us what we have to do. So uh, he uh, was with Fenness for a year. When he came out, two years later, he wrote a book opposing assisted suicide. And that, again, is a choice. And I think uh, that your listeners would understand that there are times when someone is in great pain, uh, when the likelihood that they will uh, survive is very, very slim. And they choose, in five states at least, to have assisted suicide. Now, uh, I respect the idea that there are religions, and uh, the judge has one of them, uh, that uh, forbids that. That's fine. Uh, that's personal choice also. But he, he's not ready to let the rest of us in the United States make decisions for ourselves. And I think that's that's a big problem. Let's talk about the, uh, the nomination of Judge Gorsuch as far as um, President Donald Trump goes and, and this process, right, between uh, the, our former president, President Barack Obama, in which there were, it was somewhat controversial in that, you know, when he, he wanted to appoint or suggest uh, Judge Merrick Garland, I mean, there was uh, so many roadblocks or objections to that and then and actual uh, practices by, I guess you could say, Republicans or certain politicians who didn't allow for that to happen. Well, that's right. And the Constitution provides, uh, I think we're probably past that now because I don't think anything's going to happen. Nobody's going to be able to revive the Garland nomination. But uh, the fact is that uh, the Senate's job is not to refuse to consider a nomination, but rather to advise and consent. And they're supposed to look at it and they say yes or no. That's the system. But they were cute in a political way this time, and they thought, well, maybe the Republican will win the presidency, and so we'll just, and we, they had control of the Senate. So they sat on it. Mm-hmm. So I think the Democrats are, are quite upset about that. Uh, the biggest point, I think, with Judge Gorsuch is that he was nominated by President Trump. President Trump is in the process of taking positions that are contrary to the Constitution. Um, as we speak, there are two district judges that have held that his latest order is uh, not enforceable. We'll see what happens with that. But uh, as to uh, the whole question of whether Judge Gorsuch has the spunk 
to sign an opinion in which he says that what the president has done is unconstitutional. I doubt it. I don't see the case Mm. being made that he's going to do that. And if he's not going to do that, and we have President Trump, who is, I think, 55 days into his administration, whatever number of constitutional violations have occurred, let's say five or six or seven, that's uh, like one every 10 days, and and he his style, the president's style, is to never back down on anything, and so and to attack the courts, which is very offensive. It's very offensive for him to attack the courts. It's uh, not healthy at all for a democracy. What about in comparison to uh, the late Justice um, Antonin Scalia? Yeah, I mean that's that's being suggested as though if he's like Justice Scalia, therefore that's an argument that he ought to be confirmed. I don't understand that argument because uh, Justice Scalia, in my view at least, was not in the mainstream of legal thinking. Uh, That's a term that they use sometimes in the Judiciary Committee. You know, is this person in the mainstream? Well, Justice Scalia had this concept, I don't want to ridicule it, but he had a concept that the way you resolve certain interpretations is to go back and decide what the founders had in mind. Well, to me, that doesn't make any sense at all. I've never understood that argument. And I think it's fair to say that in the last two, three, or four years, uh, the intellectual interest in that theory waned I don't think people uh, who follow the court were that interested in it anymore. You can't go back and decide what Madison had in mind. And even if you did, what about mm-hmm. what about the other founders? So um, uh, if he's and I, I am told that he has some of that originalism. It's called. He has some of that. I don't think that's a healthy thing for a democracy. Uh, we. I'll, I'll mention one other thing, and I'll stop. It, probably the most popular philosopher that the country has produced uh, was of the view that pragmatism was was the right way to go. And John Dewey was that philosopher, and he especially in the field of education. Well, uh, that's that's what judges do. I spend lots and lots of time in front of judges, and they're they're very good people. And they're trying to figure out what the legal answer is. Right. That's what they're trying to do, and they're trying to determine what the effect of their ruling will be on other people. They're trying to determine what controlling authorities there are and what they should do. That's what they're doing. They're really not thinking about Madison's brain. So I, I just didn't get Scalia's idea there at all. What do you think, you know, and as we wrap up this conversation for us everyday people, um, and what we hear is just kind of what we read or what we get from the media. And so when they say, you know, he's he's bad for America for, for a lot of the reasons that you listed, um, if, if people are, list, are listening or are following us in this conversation, but overall, I mean, you know, would he, he is a, what we're saying is he would not be a good choice for the country. Well... Here's something that might appeal to the red states and the blue states and the people in those states. At the heart of people's needs is housing, education, and jobs. Healthcare also has to be listed on that 
small list of things that's very, very important. And when you focus on those things, then you ask, how good is Gorsuch uh, on jobs, for example? He's not very good on jobs. Uh, He's uh, likely, not always, but he's likely to determine that the corporation was okay when they fired somebody or they let somebody go. Uh, in terms of housing, the president is is cutting the, all the federal programs, and we'll have to see whether any of that gets to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, so, he, and the basics, the fundamentals. I've, I've always thought if we went into one of the red states and we talked to people at one of the restaurants and so forth, that those three things would they would say, yeah, I care about those things. I think Gorsuch is removed, Judge Gorsuch is removed and cool when it comes to those fundamentals. And I think that's one reason that President Trump nominated him. Great point. Great point. And we mentioned earlier, you know, just some of the uh, delay tactics that um, uh, that the Senate was was uh, engaged in when President Obama tried to appoint uh, Judge Garland. Are we going to see any response? What do you think? Do you think that we're going to see any any tactics, any anything like that? Um, I know you kind of answered that, uh, but what what do you think, Democrats? How will they respond? Well, it'll be hard. It'll be hard for them unless uh, they can find something that really is very damaging, and they haven't found that yet. He, Judge Gorsuch, is evidently well acquainted with one of the billionaires in in. Uh, Colorado, but there's, you know, he, and he represented uh, the gentleman, and uh, there's nothing really wrong with that. He's a lawyer, he was a lawyer, and he represented him. So it was a big story in the New York Times yesterday about it. Uh, so, so far, they have not produced something that is a total disqualification. But my standard is if a, if a U.S. senator comes to the view that a judicial nominee is going to hurt a lot of people in that, their state, they ought to vote against them. That is a very simple idea. And hopefully enough people on, in the Senate will do that. We'll see what happens. Jim, I want to thank you so much for your time and for joining us here and giving us your thoughts on Judge Neil Gorsuch. Thank you. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org. 
download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on the program. The Michelle Meow Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Uh, And what I mean by that is we talk about everything. We talk about politics. We talk about social issues. We talk about activism. And then we also talk about ourselves. Uh, I know that a lot of you might be thinking about how your life will change if the Affordable Care Act is repealed and or gutted or, or, you know, maybe change. I don't know. We don't know. We, We really don't know what's going to happen. But it's a very serious question, especially if you purchase health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. This heavily applies to the LGBTQ community because one of the things that the Affordable Care Act did for the community was give us a chance uh, to have insurance even if we had pre-existing conditions, which affects the queer community uh, at a high percentage, especially if you're transgender. And so what does it all mean if the Affordable Care Act were to change? And what are some things that we need to be thinking about? Well, I've invited my good friend, Michael Micheletti, who's with Unison, and uh, he's going to be able to talk to us or talk us through the Affordable Care Act if it changes or, you know, just some of those important things that we really need to be thinking about. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks, Michelle. All right. So I brought up the Affordable Care Act. And I think, you know, for the most part, people want to hear from maybe covered California, if you're here in, in California, or they want to talk to uh, a, 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 their health care providers or something. But I thought you would be the best guy to answer some of these questions because, uh, you know, you'll, you'll be as unbiased as possible and you're just here to give us the mm-hmm. information. So the Affordable Care Act, what do you have to say about it if it gets repealed? I mean, right now is where we stand, and I think you alluded to this in the open, Michelle, is that we really don't know what the status is. So I think there's a couple things for the audience to really consider to to evaluate where we're going to be with in terms of health care for all, and we'll call it that, is that the that no one can be refused for health care. That's got to stay. It's very, very important. But Some troubling stats that I've been looking at here in the past few weeks is that at an individual level, Americans spend more on health care than anything else, more than housing, more than their utility bills. All told, health care accounting now for about 21% of U.S. household spending. And I saw that number, and it really got me to thinking of why are we at that level? 21%, that is a large number for for an individual to to shoulder when it comes to something that's core that they're going to need. And 
two things really come to mind here. It's well documented what uh, the healthcare sector has in terms of waste. Healthcare industry accounting for more than $2 trillion uh, a year. It's a $2 trillion a year industry. Ugh. Uh, what do you mean by waste? It, waste is about half. So about $1 trillion of that is waste. And depending on what reports you look at, it can go up and down. But, but, I'm, but I mean from like a consumer's perspective. From a consumer's perspective, waste can be anything from a misdiagnosis to inappropriate pharmaceuticals being mm. dispensed uh, and taking too long to come to a complete diagnosis for a patient. And all of that contributes to waste. If you have to go to the doctor four, five, six times instead of one or two times, that increases the waste you should be receiving the best possible care in the least amount of time. And so that's something for everyone to really keep their eye on as, as the ACA and whatever the next version of this is going to be, is how the government is going to attack this very serious problem of waste within the healthcare industry and making sure that we're all receiving the best possible care in real time. The second thing that's really concerning is medical billing and this term called balance billing. And, and I'm not sure if anybody knows what balance billing is in the audience, but I have a, few, have a feeling that people have been the recipient of a balance bill before. Is balance bill basically is if you go to the hospital, you go to the emergency room, and your visit is $1,000. Your insurance will cover 300 some providers are going to send you a balance bill for that $700, and you're on the hook for that. And this is if you have insurance. So that number is a moving target right now. And what, it's, what we're seeing is that, that people are being bankrupted by medical debt at the highest level in history right now. So what... Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, failed to really attack and was supposed to do was stop this from happening. It did not happen. And what we're seeing right now is people being bankrupted by medical debt simply on the premise of getting sick. Mm -hmm. That's not a good place for us to be at. So, you know, as we look at this and we, we ask those hard questions to our legislators of what are they going to do to regulate that and making sure that you are not penalized, Michelle, for simply getting sick. I have insurance. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and still I'm on the hook for seventy, eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollars simply because I, I fell ill. So really attacking that problem in combination with the with the the waste that's going on within the healthcare industry could lead us to a better path when it comes to healthcare for all. Mm. You know, it is very important for us to all to have healthcare coverage. And as long as they keep that caveat in there that no one should be refused health care, if you really want it, you have access to it. But at the same time, do we then, we have this health care coverage, but it's not doing what it's supposed to do and keeping us insured. And, and, and staying uh, apolitical and unbiased here, I mean, what mm. we're, we're talking about is really just some of the things that we hope legislators will change about the current or existing Affordable Care Act program. Correct. Um, these things do really need to change. This is our acknowledgement that it wasn't perfect. And I think that the former administration who had put you know, the Affordable Care Act in place had admitted that. But getting rid of the Affordable Care Act altogether without a plan – I, you know, 
I can only imagine that it would create chaos, if not more sick people and more people in debt. Right. And I think looking at that, you know, holistically from what the Obama administration did do, and they did, they started this conversation, Michelle, right, Mm -hmm. about health care empowerment, number one, that, you know, just being able to say that is really, really powerful, right? We need people to take charge of their health care. And this was the first step. And, you know, as as you just alluded to, it wasn't perfect. There are serious challenges and hurdles that we're going to have to navigate here to get to that level where this is appropriate coverage and it's going to work for everybody. You know, they called it the Affordable Care Act. And when it when that naming convention came out, I sort of paused and I, I gave the consideration of, well, what's affordable to me is not necessarily what's affordable to you, Michelle. And it should be more of a health care for all. And, and they'll, they'll figure this out in, in the later generations of the program. But we need to ask these questions. We need to continue the conversation because at 21 percent, that number is impacting some of the other topics that we're going to talk about today. Anything else you want to say about the Affordable Care Act before we let you go, Michael? No, that's great. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's Michael Micheletti. He's with Unison, and uh, we're going to continue our conversation. We're going to have him back on to talk about some other things that you should know, such as education and school loan debt or even, um, you know, home buying. I mean, that's really important. So stick around for that um, later on in the show, and that's what we do here. We report on your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We'll be right back. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. This show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between shows. So we talk about everything. You know, one of the things that uh, has been on my mind, and I've talked a lot about it on the show, actually, is how... Things have changed for us, even if you're, you know, in a generation that might not be Generation um, X or something like that, or 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 if you're not a millennial. I mean, uh, this idea of the American dream of owning a home has somewhat changed, especially if you live in a big urban city like San Francisco. And I say it's changed because, you know, I had always thought that I would become a homeowner Uh, very young in my age and being ambitious and thinking I'm going to get a full-time job and the first thing I'm going to do is buy a home. But uh, I think gentrification and a lot of things that have changed here, especially in the Bay Area, might have stunted those plans or even, you know, maybe maybe, uh, there's different types of debt or priorities have changed or people just don't have the education that they need in order to find ways or best practices to become a homeowner. So I've invited my good friend, Michael Micheletti from Unison, to come on and talk to us about home ownership. And, and yes, while it may have changed, especially after the 2008 housing bus, um, he might be able to give us some tips or change the way we think from the negative to the positive and how it could be possible. Michael, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Michelle. Thank you. So home ownership, it, it is possible. I mean, many people who, you know, make, I think, six figures uh, here in the Bay Area will complain that they still can't afford a home. Mm. 
Well, we know a couple of things. And at Unison, we're always looking at that intersection of housing costs across a wide spectrum of variables, Michelle. Like, we've talked about this previously, about how student loan debt's impacting a millennial's ability to purchase a home. Or maybe how healthcare costs are contributing to the inability to purchase a home because they're saddled with healthcare debt. So we're always looking at programs and ways to be able to bring home ownership opportunities to the masses, right? Um, and there are a couple things right now for those within the San Francisco Bay Area to look at. And, and, and we know, speaking to that point, is that we know for a majority of the people in the Bay Area, they make enough money to afford the, the monthly payment, that mortgage payment, right? right? The significant challenge and hurdle right now is coming up with the appropriate down payment. Mm -hmm. So those monthly payments are manageable. So some of the low down payment programs aren't really applicable here or a place like Seattle or San Diego or Los Angeles or even a Portland for that matter where home costs are rising rapidly and they're outpacing salaries. And so what we're looking to accomplish is to be able to sort of jumpstart, if you will, the home buyer's ability to fund that down payment as quickly as possible. So they're able to take advantage of the still very, very low interest rates that are going on today, uh, but at the same time still maintaining that monthly manageable payment and letting you live your life, right? Maybe you still need to pay off some of that student loan debt or you have health care considerations that you need to take care of. You know, the, the housing, the purchase of a home should not take away from those. It should only accentuate and make you be able to deliver across all those channels. So, you know, one thing that's troubling that has come out is that a lot of people that have tried to purchase a home or looking at the purchase of a home here in the foreseeable future is that if you're putting down less than 20 percent, uh, you typically have to pay mortgage insurance. The lender is going to require that. And that's to mitigate their risk, right? This really does little for you. You're insuring the lender against your inability to pay long term. But for a long time, the crutch has been is that you've been able to write that off on your taxes. Well, at the end of 2016, that uh, ability has gone away. So for those that are sitting down to do their taxes here in the next few months before April 18th, I think, this year, uh, you'll still be able to write off that mortgage insurance. But moving forward, you're not going to have that ability any longer. So what does that mean for the home consumer out there, the home buyer, or even the home owner? Is that you're going to have to plan appropriately, that that write-off is not there for you, and also now your monthly payment with that mortgage insurance is going to be higher if you're not going to put down the 20%. So you need to look at alternative forms of financing, look at gift funds, look at equity investments within the marketplace, look at a home ownership investment possibly as well, to see how do I bridge that gap quickly and effectively as possible so I get the equity that I need in the home while still taking care of my other financial obligations down the road with paying off that student loan debt, which we know is a major problem, or anything else that's going on in your life. So this is really important, especially for those who already purchased your home, um, and this applies nationwide, Michael? This is nationwide. So this was a longstanding uh, tax write-off. Now, Congress can obviously intervene at any time and, and reinstitute that for 2017, but I think it would be prudent and smart for homeowners that are currently paying mortgage insurance to know that they're not they're going to have that ability to write it off moving forward. Oh, wow, some some big significant changes. And is there anything being done 
from uh, I don't know any any rumblings on your side of people trying to fight that, or is that kind of it's you know it's it's silent unless you know, they're listening to you today. I think it, it's atypical of Congress as they look to extend some of these programs. Uh, the Bush-era tax cuts and a variety of things that have gone on through the years, that Congress will probably take a look at this, but this is all speculation, and I don't like to ever speculate when it comes to, the, to these kind of things, right? It's right now, today, this is what we need to know, mm-hmm. is that that particular uh, ability to write off mortgage insurance is not going to be available to you. So what do you need to do to plan appropriately as you talk to your, you know, your financial advisors, your accountants, how do you plan appropriately knowing that that's not going to be available to you this time next year? So just to wrap up a couple things you need to know, it's still possible for you to be a homeowner, but you got to think about it in a very different way. And it's a strong recommendation these days to come up with that 20%. And secondly, if you are a homeowner, you will not be able to write off uh, your mortgage insurance if you if you're paying for that. And so those are some significant changes. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here and sharing some of your knowledge. As always, glad to be here. I'm sure you'll have more to share with us. So uh, that's what we love about the show is we're able to just talk about everything as it applies to our lives. And the interesting thing is that that's not just an LGBTQ thing. That's a everyone thing. Uh, Michael will be back. He is the director of communications at Unison. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Thursday, March 16th. Uh, A lot of stuff out there happening. We're seeing a a rise or an increase in reports of states across the country who are looking to pass laws that are anti-LGBTQ laws. I mean, Texas has been trying to pass an anti-transgender bathroom access bill for the longest time. So be on the lookout for that. Be, Be awake, or I think some people are using the 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 phrase stay woke uh and stay active and just stay informed there's a lot going on and when we take our eyes off of what's actually happening that is when they're able to squeak by and get some of these laws passed so be be vigilant be active in all of your communities reach out to people if you know them from other states don't just focus on what's happening in your neighborhood but uh, be mindful that there are states across the country, there are neighborhoods across the country who are experiencing you know, a different experience than what we are experiencing here in California. Thanks again for joining us here on the Michelle Miao Show. I want to remind you that we're here Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. On Fridays, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club hosts his political roundtable talk week to week. And so you should definitely check that out as they air uh, talks and programs from people like Madeline Albright, Robert Reich, who's been very vocal and very helpful during this transition uh, period, I like to say, or this, this, this transition back into this cold era of American history with Donald Trump as our president. Um, also, on Sundays, we air B.B. Sweetbriar. It's everything with B.B. Sweetbriar, and uh, she is a drag extraordinaire here in San Francisco and keeping up with the nightlife, the arts, and, uh, and culture, and pop culture. So that's a pretty good show to look out for. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. I post all of my shows there, as well as the most recent episodes of Coffee TV. And the show coming up this Sunday at 9.30 on Coffee TV, if you're in the Bay Area, features two transgender activists who will cover the rising epidemic of murders and violent attacks against black transgender women, as well as an activist by the name of Mia Satya Too Much, 
who will cover transgender youth issues, especially as it pertains to the most recent attacks from this president and his administration when it comes to transgender youths and access to the facilities that they best identify with. So that is all wrapped up in a tornado. It's happening. We're, we're fighting. I'm fighting this cold. I'm going to let you go. Thanks again. We'll see you tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time.